Hey everybody, what's up? This is Joseph Coyne. Welcome to the ASCA Podcast. What's up everybody? Joseph Coyne here and we've got the ASCA Podcast with you today. Uh, I really appreciate all you guys and girls jumping on to listen to this podcast. It's uh, I'm having a ball doing it. This is actually my second one I've done, so you'll have to excuse my interviewing skills and um, a, a bit of uh, a bit of the stuff that goes on. But it's look, it's a really enjoyable experience, and I hope you guys are, and girls are enjoying it a, a lot as well. Um, so obviously, it's done through the ACA. If you are a member, don't don't worry. Sit back, relax. Um, Kick back, enjoy enjoy the podcast. If you're not a member, though, I really want you to think of getting involved with the ACA, uh, the Australian Strength and Conditioning Association. It's a great organisation, um, doing wonderful things for strength and conditioning, not just in Australia, but in New Zealand and the wider Asia-Pacific region. I really think it's a good idea. It's cheapest chips to become a member. There's a pro structure. There's a journal. There's all sorts of good things. Uh, you get to hang out with some top, 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 top S&C coaches at the annual conference. And they also have a mentoring program where you can also access these uh, these S and C coaches for for um, uh, like the cost of nothing basically. So look, it's a great like I said, great organisation. Get involved if you're not involved already. Today we have a guy called Kieran Young. Now Kieran Young is a bit of an undercover star in the strength and conditioning and sports science. Uh, industry. Uh, he's not very well known outside of outside of that industry, uh, but he is. He's definitely a guy that you you should be listening to or, or taking heed of what he advises. He has worked for Cricket Australia. He's worked for Queensland Academy of Sport. Um, he was actually the the head of strength and conditioning at Queensland Academy of Sport. And once he stole all the good ideas from the Australians, he uh, he. Uh, hightailed back to Canada, where he's actually from originally, and became the head of strength conditioning at the Canadian Sports Institute in Vancouver Island. There, he uh, he ran a team of like, a lot of S and C staff. Um, from that, he actually became the head of sports science with uh, like some vague Middle Eastern country that we can't name due to security reasons um, for their tactical operations and their special force operations. So he's got a heap of good info for. Things like Olympic sports, especially throwing, things like tactical and special force operations. So it's really quite interesting. And uh, I, had a, I had a ball interviewing him. Um, there's there's also some great stuff. Let me think. There's some great stuff on working with other coaches and building building trust and rapport, especially with head coaches that that you have to kind of get to buy into your program um, or buy into what you want to do and and how you how you work. Work with them, and he gives a great example working with a, a very, very successful former USSR coach, and how he, how they sort of started working together and built that trust, built that rapport. Um, his main research area or research interest from his master's degree is also the dynamic strength index, and he actually took that. It's normally applied in the lower body with a jump and isometric mid-thigh pull. He took that and applied it to the upper body. So it's really cool what he did there. Um, we've got. Considerations, especially with throwing athletes. Obviously, he's got that experience in uh, with cricket and water polo and and a few other things, and also things like maximal strength and uh, how important that is for tactical operations, um, the conditioning they use, and stuff like the emergence of technology in strength and conditioning and how how that's changing uh, the landscape for coaching. So, look, uh, it's it's a great great interview. Um, 
afterwards make sure uh, make sure you check out check out his uh, his profile on on Twitter that's probably the only way you'll get in contact with him or LinkedIn if you're interested and so boom let's get it on let's let's uh, rock and roll let's uh, get into this podcast okay uh, it's Joseph Coyne here I'm, I'm on the ASCA podcast uh, we are here with a guy called Kieran Young I've had a, 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 the great pleasure of uh, of being friends with Kieran for quite a while um we're, I guess you'd say we're part of the same coaching tree. Uh, Jeremy Shepherd was my supervisor at university, or maybe maybe academic uh, supervisory tree, I don't know. But Jeremy Shepherd was my supervisor at university and uh, for my master's degree. Kieran was doing his master's degree at the same time um, under, the, um, under Jeremy as, as well. And uh, we got to know each other. And look, he's a great guy. He's uh, worked with Cricket Australia. He's been at the Queensland Academy of Sport and they're looking in, probably in their heyday. He was also uh, the head of strength and conditioning there for a while. He went to um, the Canadian Sports Institute, and I believe that he, he might correct me on this, but I believe that was in uh, in uh, Vancouver Island. And from there, he's gone to some uh, Middle Eastern country that we can't name, and he works for a tactical organisation as the head of sports science. So, um, Kieran, mate, great to have you on. Yeah, thanks for having me, Joseph. Thanks for having me. Mate, um, so look, I guess the uh, the first, like like every anything, the first place to start is like, uh, where did you start? How how and why did it did it begin? Um, what got you into strength and conditioning? Yeah, sure. um, and one thing I did forget to mention is Kieran's Canadian, so he actually came from Canada to Australia to begin his career, if, if I'm correct. So, mate, tell us about that. Yeah, sure, for sure. So, I guess like many of us. My career in SNC started with my passion for sport, especially in high school. I played uh, a lot of different sports and was very average at all of them. And uh, I knew I wanted to do something with regards to sport, and it definitely wasn't going to be a professional athlete. So my PE teacher at the time said, you know, uh, there's this place in Australia called the Australian Institute of Sport. Best place to work if you want to work in sport. You should uh, be a physio there, you know, if you want to work in high-performance sport. And I said... I said, great. That's where I want to be. I'll be, I'll be a physio at the AIS. That's my goal. So back in the day, I uh, enrolled in uh, exercise science uh, because thankfully physiotherapy is a postgrad in Canada. So you have to do an undergrad before. Sure. And uh, did my um, exercise science. Uh, and then during that time, I had to do an internship. And uh, I actually did it at a uh, private facility in Australia. Actually, I was on exchange. And I kind of fell in love with it. And when I moved back to Canada for my final year, I had to do another internship and worked at another private facility in Canada. I just fell in love with S&C. So I um, yeah, finished my degree in exercise science and started working in a private facility uh, as an S&C coach in Vancouver. Hey, right. So, so that's you're, how it all started. You, you went to university in Vancouver as well? Yeah, I went to University of British Columbia did a degree in human kinetics. And then for one year, I moved down to Australia on exchange um, at UQ and uh, did an internship down in, down in Brisbane as well. Ah, right so on. once I graduated, I worked at a private facility before moving down to the QAS. Yeah, right, right. right and um, look, tell us, about the, tell us about the QAS. Tell us who was there when you first got there, what, uh, what sports you worked with there. Um, obviously, it's a multi-sport model, um, yeah, and, and it's rock and roll there. 
Yeah. No. You know, looking back at it now, it's probably, well, I believe it's probably the, the it was the most ideal place for a young and up and coming SNC coach to, to work at. You know, you worked with multiple coaches, multiple sports, multiple level of athletes. So it really gave you a, a really wide base of, of knowledge, being able to work with all those different types of populations. And um, yeah, so I started off there as the scholarship coach back in 2006, I think, just a part-time coach, working with uh, men's football and netball. And then um, I, was, I was lucky I was in the right place at the right time. One of the other SNC coaches left. And I, um, yeah, it was, it was just a great place to work. Anthony Georgie was the, was the manager at the time, and he was, you know, such a a great manager, a great mentor still to this day, never micromanaged, uh, was always supportive. And um, yeah, we had a great team there back in the day. It was, it was him, Jeremy Shepard, Andrew Loham, Michael Davey and David Watts. So it was really like the, the, the dream team of, of SNC back in the day. And, you know, I, I really thoroughly enjoyed my time there. And um, the sports that I probably worked the most with, uh, were men's field hockey, uh, men's water polo, men's gymnastics. Those are probably the three core sports that I worked with. And then over the years, dabbled in a bit of athletics, squash, and sailing. So, yeah, huge different variety of sports, which, which I think as a, as a young SNC coach is great. Sure, 100%, 100%. And just, just those names ringing off, like Anthony Giorgio is now here to track and field for Hong Kong, not, yeah. not as a head of performance. He's like head coach, you know what I mean? Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and uh, G- Jeremy uh, obviously is, is pretty well regarded in the um, academic world, and uh, obviously, obviously, strength and conditioning world. And uh, Michael Davies oh, now yeah. in the NBA team, and yeah, it's it's great. Yeah, yeah, no, and you, and you learn so much too from those guys. You know, I I just soaked up everything I could from them and, and stole all their ideas. It was yeah, it was really a great place to to work. Oh, hundred percent. That's what they're there for: stealing ideas off. I love that. Exactly. Yeah, mate. So, so how long were you at the Queensland Academy of Sport for? I was there for almost eight years. So, yeah, I think I, I left at the beginning of sorry, at the end of two thousand fourteen to move to Canada. Um, I think during during that time, also while I was at the QIS, I I would get uh, seconded to Cricket Australia. So. Uh, I would work with their AIS program, which is the the academy program that they have there. And it's during the players' off-season. So what Cricket Australia would do is they would choose who they think to be the next national team players and bring them up to Brisbane during the off-season for about 16 to 18 weeks, where myself and another guy, Aaron Kellett, who's actually now the, the head SNC for the men's team, would work with them for 18 weeks to prepare them for the upcoming domestic season. And um, yeah, it was, it was great uh, place to be also, you know, Aaron was great and the coaches we had there were also great. And if you look at the team now, the, the men's national team, I would say close to 90% of the guys that are on that team came through the Academy system uh, when myself and Aaron were there. So yeah, it was, it was um, really another great place to work. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. So Obviously, there's a there's a massive throwing component um, with uh, cricket, and also you mentioned you work with uh, with track and field. And I, and if I'm not mistaken, you also did a lot of work with water polo. Is that correct? 
Yeah, water polo. Yeah, men's water polo for sure. Yeah. Um, and so that, that's something, mate, I'll, I'll talk to you about in, in a little bit further down the track is like those sort of thrown yeah. considerations and, uh, and what yeah. you might do around that and so on. I think that'll be really great for people listening that are involved with, with those type of sports as well. Um, so yeah, not a problem. From QAS, um, you you and and this convent with Cricket Australia, you went back to to Canada and tell us about that. Yeah, sure. So you know, once I had stolen all the Aussie secrets to success, I moved back to Canada and um, took up the head of SNC position with the Canadian Sports Institute. Uh, working predominantly with men's rowing and diving and also managing the the department. So we had about 13 coaches across three different locations, uh, which was a little bit um, difficult at times to manage. We had a, our main facility was in Victoria on Vancouver Island. Then we had another one in Vancouver and then we had our winter facility up in Whistler. So being able to, to manage that amount of coaches across those locations was, was a bit difficult, but um, yeah, also another, you know, great place to work um, working solely with national teams and national athletes compared to the QAS, which was a, a bit of a mix of both. And really Victoria is probably the nicest city in the world, you know, hands down, especially in the summertime. So lifestyle wise, it was great. Cool. 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 Um, Mate, let, let, while, while we're here, let's talk about, like, obviously you worked with a heap of different coaches at QAS and then you became the head yep. of S&C at CSI. Let's talk about, like, your philosophy on working with other coaches, especially ones you've been involved with, and how you develop that relationship um, between staff, and, and not just between S&C staff, but between, like, other ancillary staff or, or at the QAS, you had to work with heaps of different head coaches as well. How do you develop yep. a relationship with, with a head coach for hockey and then a head coach for water polo, they all have different locker room cultures and uh, yeah, they and, do. Yeah, uh, yeah, little idiosyncrasies. So yeah, let's yeah, let's they get do. into yeah. that. Yeah, no doubt. The I think the first thing you have to remember when you're you know you start working with a coach is that you have to develop the trust. And obviously, trust is just another word for relationship, and it's a two way street. And there there are many different components of building trust, but probably the the most important ones are knowledge. Obviously, you have to have the knowledge to be able to perform the, the service or the duty required of you. Secondly, you need to, you know, show hard work. You actually need to, to work. You need to have the humility. You need to have the empathy so you can understand what the coach is going through, the, the difficulties that he or she faces. And you also have to have a compromise, too, because their training philosophies might not exactly align with your training philosophies. And I think it's important that, once that trust is established, that the, the closer you can align your training philosophies to that of the coach, the more success you'll have. So, yeah, it's about open communication, uh, asking the coach what he or she wants. And, um, you know, I would say always uh, over, under-promise and over-deliver. Sure, sure. Do, do you have any specific examples in like, uh, and we obviously we're talking about head coaches right now or, or technically te- head technical coaches. Um, do you have any specific examples that you remember where you were like, okay, that actually worked well or no, that didn't really work that great uh, with what you're doing with them. And building that yeah. coach. Yeah. So we uh, probably, the, the one of the more difficult uh, relationships that I, that I had to, 
Foster was with our gymnastics coach. And he was from former USSR. He was uh, Vitaly Shurbov, um, his coach. So the, the gymnast that won six gold medals and sure. seven medals in total in Barcelona. So he was a legit, legit coach. But mm-hmm. obviously he came from former Soviet Union, which has some pretty different training techniques compared to our modern day Western style of training. So it took a lot of uh, convincing for him to, you know, give up, well, not give up, but to allow his gymnasts to strength train, like properly strength train, mm-hmm. which was a big win. So we started off, I started off with just doing the rehab for the guys when they would get injured. And then he noticed that they would come back even stronger. And then so he was like, well, why, will, why, why should I wait, you know, if um, for guys to get injured, to get stronger, why don't we just start now so that slowly developed and he you know he he still really wanted to concentrate on specific strength specific to the the movements of of gymnastics and so then we had to I had to educate him on the you know the the benefits of just general strength training that they didn't do in their training so because they do a lot of body weight uh, specific strength work already that's you know of a high intensity obviously when you're on the rings and you're doing a uh an iron cross or a maltese that that's pretty you know intense and so it took a lot of time to convince him uh to do some general maximal strength work like squatting deadlifting chin-ups and that sort of stuff but he finally came around and it, it just came down to open communication with him and, and compromise. So it didn't move straight into doing heavy deadlifts, you know, over a period of a year, we went from solely body weight stuff to actually doing what we would consider to be traditional, normal type strength work. Yeah. Right on. Right on. I mean, that's such an interesting, interesting sport to gymnastics because obviously oh, yeah. they, they've got the highest levels of relative strength out of, out of any athlete. And, like, do they, do they need to do that? Like, that's a question I have is like, do they need to do the barbell work or like the general strength stuff? And, and um, it's, a, it's a really, really interesting question. Yeah. Actually, the, the strongest uh, upper body uh, bench press that I've ever seen was uh, we had a little gymnast. He was, he was 16 at the time and he had uh, bilateral pars defect. Mm-hmm. And um, so he couldn't do any lower body work or minimal lower body work. So he was off skills training so he was in the gym a lot doing a lot of upper body work and he weighed 50 kilos and he was benching about 120 for one one rm sure not bad so when you yeah when you think of it in absolute it's it's not great but as a 50 kilo 16 year old dude he he was pretty strong relatively yeah almost two and a half two and a half times body weight not a bad bench exactly not Not a bad bad bench at all especially when i you know, think about how much that is for me. That's, that's quite a lot. Oh, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. No, it's crazy. And look, mate, working in China, like the gymnast, there was a question I had from, from working in China. One of the teams we had to, um, I didn't do anything with a gymnast, but it was like a question that we had going on. And like, they'd be at the track and the girls would come in and they'd stay in a handstand for like 45 minutes at times. Um, after yeah. having run hard laps on a, this was their non-technical training day. And it's like, if anyone like if you can stay in a handstand for 45 minutes your arms are like your legs and uh, they're oh, yeah. amazingly powerful um so it's, yeah 
it really is interesting how you relate to it, especially a technical coach who's had a lot of success in a sport with uh, where there's that those type of questions surrounding uh, what do we do with them um, in terms of strength. Yeah, exactly. And I think another reason he was, he was also smart enough to realize that perhaps the Australian gymnasts were not as skillful as what he was used to working with and therefore needed a, an edge, you know, a window of opportunity that he could target some other way. And he believed, and, and so did I, that perhaps by increasing their maximal strength and, and their power, that would then translate to improving their skill. Sure. Yeah, 100%. So I guess that a bit of his reasoning behind it as well. Yeah. And that's another real interesting, interesting topic is the, like the Eastern Bloc coaches or the guys that go to other countries where you don't have the same systems or the socialist systems set up in place. And it's, it, it can be challenging for them at times when, when they realize, oh my God, we've got an 18 year old. That's like a nine year old uh, back in, back in mother Russia. Yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And also in, in, in gymnastics as well, sorry, is that just the, the, you know, it's predominantly been such a volume based sport where you would do repetition after repetition after repetition. And then if you couldn't deal with it and you get injured, then you just kind of move off to the side and then you, you would have, you know, another hundred kids that would come in and be able to take their spot. You become a tiger. And, yeah, yeah, you become a tiger. <laughs> but in Australia, we didn't, we, didn't, we didn't have that. We had such a small pool of, of athletes. So we had to do things a little bit differently. Yeah. And then if diving doesn't work out, you try uh, aerial skiing, basically. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. or you move into CrossFit as well yeah exactly exactly so the options are always open for the gymnast um, <laughs> no, but I think that also shows how important you know basic movement skills from gymnastics can be later on in, in your athletic career which is something that uh, often gets overlooked yeah I, I agree that's a that's a massive thing those movement skills and the, the relative to yeah. body weight and being able to pike being able to um, use your shoulders and the way you use your shoulders, weight bearing and so yeah, on. Yeah, just your, your awareness of your body in space is, is huge. Yeah, I 100% agree. That's great, Karen. Um, mate, tell us, so we've talked about head coach relationship example. Tell us relationship where you've been uh, maybe as a, the head S&C coach and you've had to deal with other S&C coaches, um, like a, a, yeah. maybe a, a good example or a, or a bad example or up to you, but like how you've fostered a relationship there. Yeah. So, you know, when, when I'm uh, managing people, I, I don't like to micromanage them. I, I think, you know, one of the beauties of working in SNC is that there are many ways to roam. And I've always let people, you know, run their own ship. And whenever they have an issue or a problem, they, they can come and ask me. So I'm a pretty hands-off uh, manager from that. But, you know, at the, at the QAS, we kind of had a culture that was ingrained within our department that, was, that started from Kelvin when he was there with all of the physical competencies and the long-term athlete development. So, you know, it's something that Anthony really, you know, pushed into us was that, you know, you earn the right to progress and that if he saw, you know, a, a 12-year-old uh, female hockey player trying to do a, a clean and jerk that, has, that can't even squat, then you know, he would step in and say no. And that's something that I would, that I continue to do as well. But we, you know, we didn't really have any, any issues with, um, you know, having a set way of training at the QIS. It was pretty much 
you were allowed to do whatever you wanted to do as long as you earned that athlete earned the right to progress if that makes sense sure sure and and that's great having having those uh having those guidelines that are sort of in place as a policy and then you let guys run for it yeah. and um and when they need you yeah. they need you yeah i think yeah, exactly. And, and one of, our, one of the, the policies when you start in, in the department is you have to go through the whole video library of the movement dynamics Sure. that, that Kelvin has put up yeah. as a competency. So you know all the exercises, you know all of the, the norms, all the values that are required. So, yeah, that's how we kind of kept the quality control. And, and then did you take that and, and institute something similar at uh, in Canada or, or was it, was there already a system in place in Canada that you just kind of ran with when you're there? Yeah. So in Canada, it was probably even less um, centralized than it was at the QIS because we were spread across three different locations. It was hard to, you know, spend a lot of time with all the different coaches. And then because we were working with national teams, we were away traveling a lot so it was mostly down to the philosophy of the SNC coach that was working within that program. Uh, that being said, you know, I, I still haven't, haven't had an issue where I needed to tell an SNC coach not to do a, a certain thing. So no, there was no set policy or guideline in Canada, but the, the coaches that were there were, were good enough to realize that they had to create their own philosophies. Sure. Sure. Yep. No, that, that's really good. Like, yeah, you got to uh, you, you got to definitely not micromanage and give people enough space to do their thing. And sometimes no. they'll make mistakes, but hopefully when they make a mistake, they'll come to you and say, "Hey, maybe what have I done wrong here? Can you help me not repeat this in the future?" Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's you know the old cliches. You know, that's where you learn the most is when you when you do make a mistake. For sure, for sure, man. Oh yeah, I hundred percent agree. I've I've made a, a heap of clangers, and they've all. Uh, all uh, always help me sort of figure out where I need to go next. Uh, um, yeah, for sure. <laughs> mate, let's talk about uh, training philosophies and also training methods. Like um, Kieran's actually, yeah. Kieran actually took a thing called the dynamic strength, strength index, which is commonly applied with a force plate um, between a isometric mid-pipe pull and, and its comparison between isometric mid-pipe pull peak force and uh, counter-movement jump peak force, or it can be a squat jump, there are a few people, little few differences there. But Kieran's actually, in, in his yeah. research, when I mentioned his masters before, he, he focused on doing something really similar in the upper body. So, mate, tell us about that. Tell us... Uh, um, what you came up with, uh, how you used it, yeah. and uh, who you used it with too. Yeah, sure. So essentially the, the dynamic strength index is just a, a method of quantifying your force velocity profile to determine an athlete's you know, window of opportunity. So whether that lies in developing your high force, high velocity characteristics or your low force, high velocity characteristics. In my master's, I used a um, ballistic bench throw and a isometric um, bench press. So we put the force plate underneath and measured the peak force from that. And what we found was that, you know, if you had a DSI... Sorry, just to interrupt. Sorry, yeah, just to what angle, what angle at the bench press did you use for your isometric? Like, was it just off the chest? Was it 90 degrees elbow? Like, where, yeah. where did you standardize yeah. that? Yeah, good question. 
It was uh, set at 120 degrees of elbow flexion. Cool. Was cool. The, the best place to do it. That was the angle at which peak force was highest mm-hmm. in the majority of people. Some people had it at 150, but uh, there was no difference between the two. And just from a standardization point of view, it's easier to control for shoulders lifting off the bench a little bit when your elbows are at 120 compared to 150. So that was the angle that we used. Right we on. found that if you had, um, so the way that, I, that, that it works in, you know, in theory is that if you can produce all this force in an isometric contraction, but then when you have to apply that force dynamically and it's really low, you're not actually using all that force that you can produce. So therefore you would say, okay, well, this person has a low DSI because let's say they can produce 2000 newtons of isometric force, but only 500 newtons of uh, ballistic force. So then you would say, well, there's no point developing his maximal strength because he already has a lot of maximal strength, but he, he or she doesn't know how to use that strength. So therefore you would target the low force, high velocity characteristic. So we found that if you had uh, a ratio of less than 0.75, you would work on ballistic stuff. And if you had a higher ratio, you would work on maximal strength. Sure. Sure. And what was an, another question that just springs to mind? Was there an initial, like, say, uh, obviously bench press is the is the common denominator. There was there an initial strength level of bench press that you that you used before those ratios became um, valid. Do you know what I mean? Or before you used those ratios? Yeah, yeah. So obviously, you know, if you if you are if you can produce a lot of um, maximal, sorry, if you can produce a lot of high velocity, low force, um, but you're weak, then obviously you work on maximal strength because maximal strength is such an important characteristic because it underpins so much stuff that we do that you obviously, that is the most important, um, quality that you need to train is, is maximal strength. So if you have a rugby player that can only bench press 60 kilos for one RM, you're not going to do any ballistic throws with, with him or her. You're just going to increase maximal strength before you do any of the other fancy stuff. So adequate levels of maximal strength, dependent on the sport, dependent on the athlete, dependent on the position, whatever you want. And then you can start using more ballistic type exercises. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Do, Do you have any rough guidelines for those adequate levels of like, say relative to body weight strength and the bench press? Yeah, I would say, yeah, I mean, it, it totally depends, like I said, on the, on the athlete, on the sport, and on the position. Um, I would say that you would at least be, have to bench press your body weight. So one kilo per kilo body, body mass would be the, the bare minimum for me. That's just my opinion. Sure. Obviously, other people would disagree or some might, might agree with me, depending on the sport. But yeah, I think every, every person should be able, regardless if you're a female or a male, should be able to bench press your body weight. Yeah, right on, right on. So obviously, what do you, what do you think about it? No, no, I, I, I completely agree. There's, there's maybe like 130 percent of body weight would be my just go to throw out. Uh, hey, how much do I need to bench here? If somebody asked me, if an athlete asked me, but yeah, yeah. Like, like something around there as a minimum. Um, 
China really influenced me too, just being around a whole lot of people that didn't do much strength training or were quite weak in the gym, but were still gold medal athletes. Um, besides yeah, the weightlifters. Well, I mean, that's what, you know, skill, skill wins, you know, hands down. So yeah. you can be as strong as you want, but if you're not skillful, it doesn't really matter. Yeah. Like none of the ping pong players would bench uh, 130% of body weight. Let's put it that way. <laughs> 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 Mate, um, uh, so getting getting back to this DSI, is there, do you have like obviously some, and I'm thinking like the guy who doesn't have access to force plates. Um, yeah. Is there other ways of, of creating something similar, an index like that, a dynamic strength index that you can do based on just using a, like a, a maybe a Smith machine and a bench press or something along those yeah. lines. Yeah. You know, I get asked this question uh, quite a bit and unfortunately there's not really, if you want to use the DSI per se, there's not really anything you can do other than using a force plate, unfortunately, but there are other means to assess your force velocity profile using, you know, graduated incremental ballistic bench throw uh, profiles tests that you can use. Um, there are even apps now that you can test your force velocity profile. It's called Powerlift app, I think it sure, is. And sure. um, from the same like uh, uh, group, Samazino and uh, and Mara. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Awesome yeah, and, and, and they've the actually, um, they've, I think one of their papers that just came out was about um, recording the displacement and the load, and then putting that into the uh, a calculation that will then give you, you know, a, a force velocity profile. Uh, which is great, but you also have to remember that you are also assuming things when you when you are trying to put numbers into an equation to get something else. So you just have to be careful about that. But um, you know, yeah, they're doing some some great work, and it's you know really easy to utilize. Um, so yeah, it's, I think it's great what they're doing. Yeah, cool, 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 um, mate. Uh, so. Going on from that, how did you actually use the DSI? You talked about like when you would apply like high velocity, low force, or high force, low velocity, like um, training methods yep. with people. Uh, how did you use that with the people you worked with? Yeah, so there's there's two ways you can do it. Obviously, the upper body and lower body. And once you once you do the the test, and if the ratio is beneath 0.75 and you're happy with the levels of strength, then you would incorporate more ballistic work in their program while maintaining their maximal strength work. So, for example, in a, in a lower body program, uh, you would do a lot of uh, ballistic um, jump squats, uh, counter-movement jump squats, squat jumps. Uh, you'd also do a lot of Olympic lifts as well while maintaining a, a small percentage of your program maximal strength. Conversely, if you have a high DSI, you would spend most of your time doing high force, such as heavy back squats, deadlifts, trap bar deadlifts, front squats to increase your maximal strength. Yeah, cool, 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 cool. Um, and just, just a quick question for the lower body, and obviously you use that a fair bit, is yep. it the same type of ratio with the, with the DSI, like 75%? Uh, yeah, I use, I use that, yep. I use that ratio. Uh, you know, the, the guys at uh, University of Salford are doing a great job. They've taken this DSI and really taken it to the next level. They're doing some really great stuff. Uh, Paul Comfort, Comfort and uh, Chris Thomas. So I think their ratio is slightly lower or slightly higher. I can't remember. But um, it also it, it depends on your population as well that you're working with. Every sport will be slightly different. So it's kind of hard to 
generalize every single sport, every single athlete and every single position that all those athletes play into, into one small ratio. But uh, no, it's come along. It's yeah, they're, they're doing a great job. And you know, that's what I, I like about science is that this idea of the DSI was started by Warren Young back in 1998. And then Jeremy got a hold of it in 2007, I think, or a little bit later and published a small paper on that. And then I did a bit of work on it now. And then it's just, it's just growing to, you know, to the next level, which is great. Uh, isn't Warren Young just a, he, he's amazing. Like I reckon he's been like about 10 years ahead of everyone else for the last, like as, as soon oh, yeah. as I've, I look back at stuff he's written like 10 years ago. I'm like, wow, it's uh, like a reactive agility test and stuff like that. Like it's, um, yeah. Oh, no. I know. He's, he's next level. You know, the, yeah, like you said, reading some of his older stuff, you think that it was written last year, mm. but it was written 20 years ago. Yeah. yeah. So for any yeah, young, young S&C coaches or young like guys in academia that might be doing their undergrad degrees or even their like uh, masters or something like that, if you if you want to check out somebody's, I'd say, real novel thinker in the field, check out Warren Young's uh, papers. He's, he's well, awesome. Yeah, yeah. yeah cool. for sure. I mean, and, and nothing is, you know, nothing is really new these days. It's pretty much all been done before, really. We're just recreating the wheel and using different technologies to either assess or, or analyze it. So, yeah, just because it's an old paper doesn't mean it's a bad paper. Yeah, sure, sure. Mate, um, do you have... Obviously, there's been a heap of stuff done with like eccentric rate of force development. Um, I'm thinking like yep. decks and uh, Sparta Science and so like eccentric power, um, extension peak force, yep. all that type of stuff. Um, tell us your thoughts about that because obviously you're well versed with force plates. Um, tell us what you think yep. about that. If you if and and if you apply it, um, how you'd apply it. Yep. So to to be honest, I haven't really done much work with eccentric peak rate of force development. Um, the uh our master supervisor greg half he he had a paper i don't think that showed you know pretty poor reliability on it i think i could be wrong so i haven't really looked into it um the same with if you use concentric peak rate of force development uh it's it's a really difficult uh measure because the standardization is required to get an accurate uh reading is is difficult to do uh, in my master's project, we found really poor reliability for peak rate of force development. The reliability gets better as you um, divide the time. So if you go from zero to 200 milliseconds or zero to 400 or zero to 600, the reliability gets better. But, you know, you still also have the problem of when, when is the cut, when, is, when does it start? Because, you know, you're always pushing against something. So you always have this a little bit of force. So it's difficult to uh, pinpoint the exact point at which your force increases, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. so if, you, if it's body. done, yeah, especially in the upper body, yeah. If it's done properly, I think it's, it's a great way. It's probably the best way of measuring how explosive you are. And um, Matt Jordan in, at CSI Calgary does some really good stuff with isometric um, uh, value, like peak rate of force development to assess your explosivity in using isometrics. Yeah, cool. Yeah, I've, I've also seen some stuff from Matt um, with like uh, 
ACL rehabilitation and um, and yeah, measures yeah, the yeah, on right and left. Yeah, no, I think it's it's an area that was you know made that was quite popular back in the the late '90s and then kind of fell out of favor because people weren't finding the correlations between isometric and and actual performance on the fields, and then it kind of is slowly coming back into fashion again with you know the different types of instruments that we can use to assess it. So. Yeah, perhaps once more research is done on the eccentric peak rate of force development, it could be a quite a valid tool to use. I'm not sure. Yeah, cool, cool, cool. Mate, you mentioned like the the timestamps, zero to 200 milliseconds, zero to 400 milliseconds. I know, yeah. well, if I remember, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I remember from like you did a comparison to, comparison between higher and lower level performers in one of your papers. And one of the big differences was the yeah. rate of force development at like within maybe it was 150 or 200 milliseconds. Um, yeah, two hundred. Yeah, between yeah. between higher and lower performers. Um, yeah, g- give us more detail on that. Um, was there anything else you found different between high and lower performers? I can't remember what sport it was in either, but um, tell us the sport and and uh, yeah, sure. So it was, I pretty much, you know, I, I pretty much just copied Dan Baker's stuff uh, and applied it to water polo. So we were lucky to have uh, in our squad of water polo at the QAS. We had a bunch of national team players and we had a bunch of uh, state level players. And uh, we assessed their maximal strength, their um, ballistic strength, and their isometric strength. And the the biggest predictor, uh, or the biggest difference between the high performers and the lower performers was absolute 1RM and relative 1RM. So the national team and, and guys... Sorry, were, sorry, this is, in a, this is in a bench press and bench press throw and, and yeah, that. Yeah, in a bench press, yeah, 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 yeah correct, yeah, sorry. And um, so we found that one hour, absolute one RM and relative one RM were the biggest, you know, differentiators between high performers and low performers. Uh, peak rate of force development, there was no difference between the two. And uh, the zero to 200 milliseconds was actually in favor of the uh, lower performers compared to the higher performers, but not, not significant. So what we concluded was that if you want to be a national team player, then you have to have the required levels of upper body strength to be able to do so. Sure. Sure. Especially. And, that, and that's, um, you know, yeah. In water polo, it's a, it's a very upper, upper body dominant sport, especially as you get more position specific, if you're playing, you know, uh, center forward or center back where you're pretty much wrestling all the time. Um, but, I, but it's just another example to, I, I don't have a clue about yeah, water polo. I don't have a clue about water polo, but to me, it looks like rugby, rugby union underwater where you've got to hold your breath. Oh <laughs> yeah, it is. Uh, it's you know I, I I knew absolutely nothing about it when I started working with it, and uh, it is really quite a, a brutal sport to play. And uh, I remember once the uh, the coach got me in. I was at practice, and they needed another player to, to play this to have, play this kind of drill that they were doing. And um, I almost drowned. Like, it's the closest I've ever been to drowning. <laughs> you know, I can't egg me very well like they do. And they were, he was just kind of having fun with me. But I, he was just pushing me under as I was trying to egg beat. And I think I probably passed out for a few seconds. And he kind of realized. <laughs> <laughs> medic. We need a medic. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that, that was the first and only time I played water polo. Yeah, right. Right, that's classic. No, um, but just uh, sorry, going back to uh, the, the strength levels, it's just another example that 
that proves that, you know, the importance of maximal strength, you know, Dan showed it in, in rugby league and, you know, I've shown it in, in water polo, but there are numerous other studies that have shown how important it is to, to have, you know, adequate and higher levels of maximal strength. If you want to be a, a high performer. Sure. Sure. Um, the, so obviously there's, there seems to be, there was like a minimum threshold level of strength for, for water polo. Yep. Would you, would you guess there'd be like a maximum threshold where after, afterwards and actually what was the minimum threshold if you remember and then would you guess there'd be like a maximum where guys that were were say in the national team that were far stronger than than others like above the main um where it didn't really help them much more if they did get stronger yeah Yeah, they did so anything above 1.6 1.7 didn't really if you're higher than that you're those those were the mid the the adequate thresholds for a national team player. So if you can reach those levels, then, you know, you would be at the same level as a national team player. Sure. Cool. Yeah. Cool. That's great. That's great. Mate. Now, one thing I did allude to when we were talking about it before was, was some of your work with like throwing athletes, obviously water polo is a throwing yep. sport. You did, you worked with yep. track and field. Um, yeah. Cricket Australia. Tell us about, um, how you'd work with them, would you, how you'd prepare, and this is a little bit of an interest area for me, having worked with track and field last 18 months, well, no, not specifically with throwers, but I had to deal with a few yep. coaches when they asked some questions down there, but how you deal with um, things like hip and shoulder separation, shoulder arm separation, yeah. um, how you prepare the yeah. shoulders. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, the two, if you look at cricket and you look at water polo, the, the, the main difference between the two is that one's played in the water, obviously. So you have, you're not touching the ground and obviously cricket is played on land. So with water polo, you really need to have uh, really flexible hips to be able to uh, allow your body to rotate. So, <clears throat> and plus the, and the problem with water polo is that because you egg beat so much, that really puts a, uh, a lot of stress on, on the hip joint as well. So a lot of the guys develop uh, FAI, either symptomatic or asymptomatic. And then once you start losing the, the range of motion in your hips, your rotation changes and then your shoulders start to get really sore because you don't have the uh, mobility to, to rotate. Um, then your obviously your shoulders, um, you know, tons of things happen in the shoulder, obviously when you throw and then add on top of that, the swimming component of water polo. So your swim, 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 fatigue, get the ball, shoot high, high velocity. And then that's where a lot of the injuries occur. So in, in water polo, we spend a lot of time, um, trying to improve the range of motion in the hips. So we do a lot of, um, exercises for that increasing adductor length, uh, strengthening all the the smaller external rotator muscles of the hips. And then a lot of rotational work as well. Um, With cricket, um, I didn't have them for long enough to, you know, have a a huge impact on them. But it's a similar thing, you know, throwing is starts from the legs and finishes in the fingers. And it, you know, it requires some type of rotation, rotational element in there. So we used to do, you know, a lot of uh, uh, back work. Um, we used to do a lot of overhead squatting, which I think is really important 
for overhead athletes, a lot of handstands, uh, holds to be able to, you know, gain strength in that overhead uh, position. Um, yeah, I, I find it's weird sometimes when coaches say that they don't do any overhead work because they get enough overhead work when they're throwing, which cool. I think is kind of uh, not the right way to think about it. I think you need to be able to strengthen the, the overhead movements if you're an overhead athlete. So, yeah, we would do a lot of uh, hip mobility stuff. We would do a lot of rotational stuff. We would do a lot of uh, rotator cuff and a lot of uh, back work as well. Yeah, right on, right on. And the, and the back work, you're talking uh, like vertical pulling, horizontal pulling. Um, was there anything specific? Yeah, all that stuff, yeah. With the, with the back? Cool. No, I mean, we just uh, we made sure that they uh, did a lot of remedial work for that. Uh, once you're a throwing athlete, obviously, you if you neglect those little small remedial exercises, they make a big difference down the track. So, you know, we would do a lot of the scapular movement, uh, scapular control, uh, external rotation, um, stretching, all of those things to try to improve and maintain shoulder health. Right, cool. But also important to look at the hip as well, you know, because it's that that's a, a a massive component in in throwing sports. Yeah, hundred percent, hundred percent. Mate, one thing we haven't talked too much about is the is is your latest position, and that's the tactical stuff. Um, so yep. now, obviously, there's there's some different different challenges with with tactical stuff, and you, you can talk as much or as little about it as what you want. I know it could be a sense of area of where we're going, but it's um, you you can't put the tactical guys into a hole for like two or three weeks and and purposely uh, purposely get them sort of overtrained to try and get a little bit of a taper out them or get a little bit of a peak out them because they might have to shoot off and, yep. and, and fight a war or something. So yeah. It's, uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Tell, tell us so about I think the. the, the, the yeah, sure. The, yeah, obviously, you know, what you alluded to was the fact that, you know, we consider team sports to be quite chaotic, but, you know, in the world of uh, special operations, you know, it's absolutely chaotic in the sense that uh, there are not a lot of rules when you're on a mission. Uh, you don't know when you're going out on a mission. So in that sense, it's, it's, it's quite um, difficult to, to plan. Um, so we, you know, the, the guys are pretty good. We, we train every morning. Um, like you said, we don't, you know, I don't put them into a, a massive hole for that exact reason. Uh, that being said, you know, if, if uh, a certain tactical population has what they call like a operational readiness cycle, so they know when they're going to be deployed, makes it a little bit easier to, to plan. But there are some elements that, you know, they're on, on standby and 10 minutes they're in a helicopter flying somewhere. So that makes it, you know, really, really difficult. Uh, apart from that, you know, it's, um, you're working with uh, most of the time a, a larger number of individuals compared to, you know, uh, an individual uh, compared to Olympic sports. So that presents some challenges as well. Um, the personalities of the soldiers is also sometimes a bit difficult to deal with. They, uh, they're kind of set in their ways sometimes. So it's a little bit difficult to sway them to, to do something else. And, you know, you always have this, um, you know, they'll, they'll always say, well, what do you know about being a soldier? You're just a, a civilian. So, you know, going back to the start, you know, building those relationships and, and gaining their trust takes a little bit more time than it does for, you know, an individual athlete or team sport athlete. 
Yeah, yeah. I was just thinking of you jumping into the pool with water polo as a, as a way of building trust. And uh, I was like, I don't know how he's going to do that in this situation where he's at now. <laughs> yeah, I'm definitely not jumping out of a plane. Yeah, <laughs> yeah cool. Mate, is there, is there any specific, like for the tactical, uh, tactical stuff, is there any specific things that you might focus on in building strength um, in certain spots or certain parts of the body or... Uh, yep. like injury risk considerations or, or things like that. Yeah. So, you know, maximal strength is, is probably even more important in, in, uh, in special operations and, and in the military and, and tactical in general, mostly because they're always carrying a weight. So whether it's body armor in, in the police or uh, body armor in a pack for the military, that extra load can sometimes be up to you know 40 50 kilos that you have to carry and if you have to infiltrate you know 10 kilometers so you have to walk 10 kilometers to get to you know the where the mission is that's hard work and you know having the maximal strength to be able to cope with that is huge and if you don't have that maximal strength that that's where you start to get injured and um you know there's tons of studies out there to show that maximal strength has a uh, you know reduces the incidence of, of injuries so from a uh, availability point of view, especially for special operations with a smaller population, it's key that all of these guys are as strong as they can be. Sure. sure. In, any specific body parts you focus on, like lower back, for instance, will be one that would just come to mind when I'm thinking of it, like if they are carrying a pack or something like that. And, yeah. Um, yeah. 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 Lower back. Uh, a lot of them have back problems. Um, a lot of them actually have neck problems, which I didn't think... They would before I joined, but if you think about the, they have a helmet on and then if they're running or evading something with all that load in the back, a lot of it goes through the neck as well. So we do a lot of uh, neck strengthening exercises similar to what props would do in rugby union uh, to strengthen that and try to preserve the the health of the neck. Uh, Lower back as well, mostly by focusing on improving uh, lower body strength. Um, a lot of them also have quite poor uh, ankle range of motion because they're wearing boots all the time. So they never really get uh, you know, access to different ranges of motion because they're stuck in that, that particularly small uh, range that their boots provide them. And then obviously if you have limited dorsiflexion that presents with, you know, tons of other problems you know, whether or not they naturally have it if you take the boots off, but they do all their activities in boots. So therefore they're quite a small range. So then, you know, we know of all the, the, you know, yeah, it goes up the chain totally. So that's another issue that we have. So, you know, obviously we would love to be able to choose, you know, our own boots, but we can't do that. It's the, it's the government, it's the military. Military gives you the boots and you wear the boots. hundred percent. Yep. No choices in that one. No choices in that one, correct. <laughs> nah, nah. Uh, yeah, cool, mate. So that, that's really interesting. It, it's something that like, I've, I've barely thought of in terms of like, uh, like tactical stuff. And I know it's a, um, a, really, like, it's a really emerging field for S&C coaches. And, uh, yeah, no, um, it is totally, yeah. And it's an area that you, know, you can make a lot of positive uh, influence on. A lot of these guys have never properly trained before. Um, and you know, if you can come in and, and run a, a program similar to, to that of a, of a team, uh, it really does work wonders for their, you know, 
reduction of injuries, their improvements in maximal strength, their improvement in aerobic capacity, their their speed work. So, yeah, we, we I, I try to train them, try to treat them like athletes, but realize that they're they're soldiers first. Yeah. So you mentioned um, you mentioned the the maximal strength stuff, uh, and and then we also just touched on there the aerobic the aerobic work. Yeah. Is is there like what type of things would you would you think would be necessary for for these guys aerobically? Um, how would you set it up in terms of like, um, or would you use similar methods to team sports um, for aerobic yeah. stuff? Yeah. So for the aerobic stuff, we you know when I, when I first started, they would typically go for a, a long, slow run. So anywhere from ten to fifteen kilometers is what they would consider to be their aerobic work. And so what we what I did is is change that and use a lot of the maximum aerobic speed stuff that Dan has done. So we use uh, a lot of grids, a lot of grid work, uh, and then using the grid work also enables you to control the group a lot better if you have a, a larger size. So we use the uh, MAS a lot based on their um, 3.2 kilometer run, and we use 3.2 kilometers because that's the the test that they have to do twice a year for. HQ, so everyone in the army has to do a 3.2. So rather than do another test for the MAS, we just use we use that. And then we also so we do it at body weight, and we also do it uh, with uh, weight vests with body armor on as well. So we do we do a mixture of both. Um, we try to incorporate body armor and boots as much as possible as well, because at the end of the day, that's what they're um, fighting in. So they might as well train it and get used to it. Um, in terms of strength work, yeah, we, we, you know, we do the typical stuff that you would do in a team sport as well, squats, deadlifts and, and all that sort of stuff. Nothing, nothing fancy. Yeah, cool. And that's such a valid point too. You, you might be able to run like a gazelle with, uh, and like running shorts and a singlet and, uh, some, uh, yeah, exactly, some yeah. flats on. But when you, when you got to run with a, with boots that are like got laces up to your knee and, uh, and you got a pack yeah, on your back yeah, and you got yeah, a helmet on. Uh, yeah, it makes it quite a lot more difficult. Yeah, yeah, for sure, mate. So we've talked about um, like training others, and you're, you're a young guy, you're, you're a fit guy. How do you train yourself? Like this is like every S and C coach, obviously, should well, I believe probably will will train themselves. Um, and it's always interesting. Yeah. to see, Okay, this is what I preach to people. What do I actually practice myself? Yeah, so I, I probably uh, practice what I preach to to the most most extent. Um, I don't really have any set uh, you know strategies that I use. I think it's important as you get older to maintain your maximal strength. Uh, it's important to be have the aerobic capacity. It's important to sprint a lot. Um, what I like about uh, the military is that if you're working in physical training, they expect you to be fit, if not the fittest person. So they really put the, the onus on you, which I think is, is important. But in terms of my own, do I have a special type of training that I do? No, I don't. I just, I squat, I chin up, bench press, the, the usual stuff. I, I'm not, uh, I'm not hardcore about it. I, what I, I say now is that I, um, I train for life. <laughs> for sure. For sure. You're here for a long time, not a short time. Oh, yeah, exactly, exactly. So, yeah, that's what I do. Yeah, cool, man, cool. Hey, and um, any uh, any things on the horizon or things that you're interested right now? Um, like, because obviously we all have our sort of focus areas and things that catch our attention and uh, 
and like in the in the field of S and C, is there any things that you're interested in right now um, that you believe will make a big influence on your practice and what you do, or or yeah. or others? Yeah, I think uh, one of the, the great things now is the the emergence of, of technology, and I don't think that technology is necessarily going to revolutionize what we do. But when you look at the at force plates, for example, when uh, when I started. We would, you could probably buy two different types. The, the FitTech and the, the Kistler were probably the only two that were available in Australia. And then now there are you know, a huge variety of force plates and the, and the software to go with it, which I think allows more people to get into using force plates. And then if more people use force plates, then that in, improves the, the data collection and the data analysis. So you know, the emergence of new technologies uh, accessible to the masses is, is going to be a, a great thing as long as people know how to use them properly. Sure. Sure. Especially when you have measures, some measures that might be quite unreliable and, uh, and you're trying to base yeah. training decisions on those and, and you, you can get those with, with their force plates. Yeah. As, as you alluded yeah. to. And I think that's what, you know, people need to be aware of that is that, um, you know, you, you can't just rely on what that, software or a piece of technology is telling you you actually have to understand what it is telling you um, and i think some people forget about that is that they'll just look at the number that that the, the software shoots out and automatically thinks you know it's a positive or a negative thing without realizing what went on behind to get that number if that makes sense 100 100 percent. and a coach's eye is so critical there like i'm i'm thinking of an example where we bumped up our sort of minimum threshold with an lpt with a gym aware for our like hand cleans um, or power cleans, another like 200 millimeters per second or 0.2 meters per second, just because it looked a bit too slow. Um, yeah, with that and and that that eye and that experience from a from a from a coach is is really important, I think as well. Oh yeah, I think you know technology should be there to to supplement your coaching, not the other way around. Yeah, that, that's yeah, that's a great way of putting it, Karen. It really is. It is. It needs yeah. to supplement what you're doing rather than you trying to, uh, rather than it telling you what to do. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so you, you can use technology to, to, to meet a goal or, or whatever, but at the end of the day, you're, you're a coach. And like you said, your, your eye is probably the most important. Sure. Sure. Mate, um, th- that's been great. We're going to, we're going to go on to some quick fire questions now. Like maybe some of these we've already touched on, uh, in, in our little chat, but, um, We'll, we'll flip through them. These can be one-word answers if you want. You can elaborate yeah. on them if you want. And um, yeah. let's, uh, let's rock and roll with them, eh? Um, so, mate, tell us, tell us the biggest high, A, and B, yeah. biggest low of your uh, illustrious, uh, illustrious career so far. Um, all right. I would say I probably have two highs. The first one was getting a full-time job at the QAS. I think that made me kind of realize, you know, oh, I'm, I'm actually a professional S&C coach, which is what I wanted to be. So that first job, you know, back in the day was, was great. Um, and the second to that was... So I'm just going to stop you there before you go on. At the start of the podcast, you said you wanted to be a physio at the AIS. And yeah. how did that change from physio to S&C coach? That's, that's something we never got into. Yeah, no, so... Uh, the I just enjoyed the S and C part of it so much that I, you know, said to myself, "Well, why do I need to do physio?" 
when I'm already enjoying and loving what I'm doing now. So like I said, thankfully, physiotherapy was a postgrad in Canada or else I'd be a physio at the AIS right now, not an S&C coach. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And, and, and I think physios have less fun. They got to work harder and uh, you're probably better yeah, off exactly. as an coach at the end of the day. <laughs> no doubt, no doubt. Um, and probably the other, the other high of my career was winning the uh, Bruce Walsh Award from the ASCA a few years ago, only because, you know, it's uh, recognition from your peers for the, the job that you've done and what you've done for the profession. So I think that was, uh, that was definitely a, a high point in, in my career was being awarded that. Yeah. So, and for, for listeners that aren't aware, the Bruce Walsh Award is like the, the strength and conditioning coach of the year, basically, um, as, far as, I'm, as far as I'm aware. But I might even be wrong about that too. Um, Kieran, yeah, yeah. No, I, I think you're right. I think you're right. Um, yeah, so that was a great uh, gesture by the ASA and the board and, and everyone that was involved with that. So, yeah, those are my two my two high points. In terms of um, low points, you know, I've been I've been lucky that I haven't had too many in my career. You know, I haven't worked full time in professional sports where you know I've been let go when the when the coach has been let go. I would say you know the lows of SNC are. You know, when uh, when you work hard with an athlete and that athlete doesn't make the national team or doesn't make the Olympics for whatever reason, that's always a, a difficult point when you invest so much time into them. Or even, you know, after working at the QAS for so long, uh, leaving the organization and leaving all those relationships that you've had there, that's always a, a difficult thing thing to do. So those two things are, are general lows of my career but I, I you know I'm I'm really lucky that I, I don't have one set time in my career where I can say that was the low point in my career sure sure and I think that's such a such a um, thing to be aware of is, is uh, I've I've been um, uh, what's the word I've been guilty of it like you you become really emotionally invested in some of your athletes and um, yeah. yeah and if they don't do well or if they only even if they only do as expected average i mean yeah, yeah. It, it's still it's still normally not good enough um and then it makes me think of i'm just the like the performance guy on the side um what about the actual head coach how does he feel right oh, now yeah. and and so it really yeah. gave me a lot more empathy for for um uh, like coaches and and working on but uh, oh yeah no doubt for sure yeah um mate what's the uh best lesson you've been taught or you've happened to learn on the job uh, probably learned from Anthony to be my ML manager at the QS to be humble. And uh, he always said to uh, let people finish what they're saying before you try to input anything. And I think that's a, a good uh, motto to have in life is that you allow other people to express themselves before you, you know, cut in and say what you want to say, which I think happens, you know, all too often. Uh, another thing that I learned it's probably uh, from, happened about uh, 27 times already on this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> um, probably the other one that I learned from one of the hockey coaches is to uh, never be late, uh, which I think is, is, you know, really important just from a, uh, you know, a politeness point of view. But the, the first time I went away with the hockey team, the bus was supposed to leave at, at one to go to the game. Our game started at three or something. And uh, so I was like, all right, I'll just come down to the bus at, uh, you know, 12.57 and be ready to go by one. And uh, came out of my room and no one else in, in the apartment was there. Oh, where they, where's everyone gone? So I go down to the bus and the whole team is on the bus waiting. <laughs> <laughs> and 
the coach goes, Garrett, where the hell have you been? We're supposed to have left. And I said, well, it's not even one o'clock. And he goes, yeah, I know, exactly. So he, that was the lesson that he taught me, that a, a one o'clock departure actually means a, a 12.45 departure and never be late. So I'm always pretty, uh, you know, passionate about always being on time. Sure. The opposite of island time. Yeah, exactly. Right on, right on. Mate, um, now you talked about a few of the guys at the, at the QAS. Tell us about the influences yep. on your practice um, and career, yep. whether they've been people you've worked with or, uh, or people you've yep. read about or, or heard speak or that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah, you know, like uh, I'm always a believer that you can, you can gain valuable experience from wherever you are. You're essentially, a, you know, a product of your experiences. And, uh, you know, there, there are too many people to thank and too many people that I've stolen ideas from that have helped me along the way. Firstly, you know, the guys in Canada where I first started that uh, this organization called Level 10. And uh, they were great. Um, Anthony Finley and Joe McCollum, two, two great strength coaches. And, you know, I would, uh, I would spend seven days a week uh, there just, you know, soaking up and stealing as much stuff as I could from them. And they were always really open about that. So, they they were probably the first two to to influence my uh, my training philosophy, and then moving to the QIS uh, guys like Anthony Georgie was was amazing and still is Jeremy Shepherd and and Andrew Loheim all you know helped me tremendously and moving to Canada we had a a lot of great coaches like Tyler Goodell who's mm, um, sure. you know great strength coach um, the man Dana Agar yeah, the Man Mountain. Uh, Dana Agar Newman, who presented at the ASTA a couple of years ago, or even last year, I think. You know, he's uh, a great up and coming, or a great. He's already there, strength coach, and another guy called uh, Nick Clark. Uh, he's a little bit more physiology based, so learned a lot from from him as well. So, yeah, di- directly from those guys, and then indirectly, obviously, you know, the influence that Kelvin had at the QAS, and, uh, you know, I still, I'm in touch with him to this day, and he's always a great sounding board for a lot of stuff, and, uh, you know, Dan Baker has also been really, you know, a positive influence on me with all of his research, and just his, uh, you know, the way that he lives life, I think is, you know, he has a lot of fun with it, which I think is is important, so probably those, all those guys have had the, the biggest impact on me, for sure. Yeah, cool, cool. Yeah, some great names there. They really are. Yeah, I'd imagine there's there's a fair few other people too would have uh, who would name those names as uh, having some influence on them. And, oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, and I also think that you know my doing my masters, um, I never really planned on doing it. I figured that once I graduated, I wanted to become a better coach rather than concentrate on academia. And then um, when Jeremy came to the QIS, he he was a big. Uh, you know, he, he kind of pushed me towards and said, you know, I think this will be good for you and something you should do. And I looked into it and decided to give it a crack. And um, yeah, so if it wasn't for him, I would never have got into academia. And then once I was in the program, you know, it was, I had a, I learned so much and um, supervisors that we had, we shared a lot of the same supervisors were really great. And in terms of increasing my knowledge, I would say that doing, doing my master's uh, at ECU through, you know, thesis, during his thesis was was great yeah and i assume you did the same too mate the, yeah like I, I exactly the same thing i'd never really thought about doing it um i i'd like had little bit little bit of thoughts and then obviously jeremy must have gone on a recruiting drive one year and uh yes, picked, exactly. up, <laughs> picked up, up us too and yeah it really was one of the most valuable things in my yeah totally. development just being able to 
one, understand how you create research for sports, how what things are actually important and what things we might just think are important and how you actually yep. go about quantifying that. Um, yep. And, yeah, look, it's uh, any, any young uh, S&C or young, uh, any person listening to this, it doesn't matter what field you're in, I'd, I'd highly recommend a research, um, a research yep. degree just for those benefits. Like uh, your bullshit yep. meter goes up a thousandfold and, uh, oh, yeah, totally. and critical thinking goes up a thousandfold. And, and those, those yep. things won't just help you in your chosen profession, they'll help you in, in everyday life as well. Yeah, exactly. And and I'd like to know your thoughts. What are your thoughts behind, um, you know, should I get asked this question a lot, like uh, a young coach just graduates from their undergrad is thinking about doing the master's, but is also wary of spending too much time in academia. What are your thoughts on it? You know, yeah. should a young coach go straight into doing the master's? And then if they do the master's and they graduate, then they may not have any experience, coaching experience to get the job. So where, where do you sit on that? It's a tough one. It really is. I, I think if 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 they wanted to work in pro sport or elite sport, they might have to do a master's just to get a look in now. Um, but a yeah. re- that's another real positive of research. Doing research on a sport gives you a foot in the door. So you, in my opinion, yeah, you either totally. got to go and do a whole heap of unpaid work or you go do a whole heap of unpaid work and get a research degree at the same time. Um, and and that's a way of getting in in like your foot in the door with a with a pro team or with a particular sport yep. that you're interested in. Yeah, I also believe that maybe you need to uh, get out there and and um, actually get in the trenches for a little bit as well. Um, yeah, we I had an interesting discussion with uh, Ashley Jones too when he was on the podcast about the back in his day you could only do a teaching degree, and so yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, yeah, PE. I actually did a PE degree too. Um, but uh, it's yeah, that stuff prepares you for managing large groups of people and for disciplining people or motivating people, um, which uh, maybe an exercise science degree doesn't do as well. So look, that's a, I, I, it's a tough one. And I think if you want to be involved in academia later on, maybe you stay and do your master's. If you want to get out and it's not yep. for you, you can always go back to uni. Like obviously, yeah, we can, yeah. like we did. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, um, yeah, look, it's a, it, it's a, it's definitely a horses, horses for courses type type deal. But um, yeah, it's a, it's a tough one. And uh, but I, I definitely wouldn't be turning people away from doing a research degree. That's for sure. No, I mean, yeah, no, totally agree, mate. Um, next question. Uh, best performance that springs to mind a in a game. And this could be a game for whatever sport that uh, you've been associated with, yeah. Um, and athletes you train, and B that you've seen in training. Yeah, good question. Um, I think in a, in a game scenario, you know, especially in a, in a team sport, you know, you have your superstars that always step up when when they need to step up. And working with the, the men's hockey program in Queensland, we had a lot of superstars. Uh, like Jamie Dwyer, Mark Knowles, uh, that, you know, won Olympic gold and silver and bronze and all that stuff. And uh, I, I can't remember a, a specific game, but whenever we were losing or whenever, you know, we weren't playing well, it was just those those leaders, those experienced guys, the guys that put in the, the hard work, that had the discipline, that always come out and and win the game for you. So... I mean, I've watched tons of hockey games, 
So I'm sure there was even, you know, 50% of the games that these guys came out and, and, and saved the day for us just because of their, how such superstars they were. Uh, in terms of uh, training, apart from my little gymnast that can bench, you know, double over double his uh, body weight, we had a um, water polo player. His name was uh, Pietro Figlioli. He, uh, he's now the captain of uh, Italy, but he used to play for Australia. And uh, he came back from his off season. He used to play, or well, still plays in Europe for the, you know, the biggest team, biggest water polo team in, in Europe called Pro Reco. And uh, he came back, you know, he rocked up to uh, preseason training with us and he was fat. Like he, he had had a good, good off season on the med, on the booze, on the whatever you want. And I've never seen an individual uh, train and transform like he did in the span of two weeks. It, it's something that just blew my mind. You know, he obviously has incredible genes. I think his mom was a national team swimmer and his dad was a, another national team athlete. And in literally, I'm not even kidding you, in two weeks, he went from this slob to going back to the way he was, you know, during the, the middle of the season. So it was just incredible. Sure. And I'd like, to, I'd like to say that a little bit, maybe 1% of that was because of me, but the rest of it was because of his genes. Just unbelievable. Yeah, right, right. Just, uh, just a metamorphosis, like an absolute transformation. Uh, yeah. yeah, just unbelievable. Never, see, never seen it. Never seen it before and still haven't seen it after. Yeah, right, right. And um, for people that aren't familiar too, like guys like Jamie Dwyer, who Kieran worked with, like the... Like I'm, I'm not very familiar with hockey, but he's obviously one of Australia's uh, big superstars in hockey, and will probably yeah. like be in the Hall of Fame of hockey wherever it is worldwide. Um, yeah, for sure, and probably a superstar in India or on the subcontinent where those where those things. Yeah, are yeah, great. he's a, he's a. I mean, he's he should be more of a superstar. Him and, and Mark Knowles should be both superstars in Australia. Uh, they're they're superstars in India with the, the the new professional league that they have there, and they're both superstars in Europe, especially in Belgium and Holland, where field hockey is so big but you know those two guys are are humble um disciplined and hardworking, and you know they deserve all the success that they they get sure sure mate next question uh and probably our last one um you got a really good intern that comes and helps you out besides getting yep. them drunk and uh and helping them find a job hopefully um yeah what what would you give them as a gift on their last day yeah, well, like you said, you know, hopefully a job. Um, a had, job and a hangover. Yeah, a job and a hangover. We, you know, in my time at the QRS, we probably had, um, I think, four, five, five interns. And no, six interns. And of those six, five of them went on to get jobs with us at the QRS. Oh, wow. So, you know, if you, if you do a good job or if you do a great job as an intern and you put in the hard work and you're um, – you know, you're, you're eager and motivated to learn, then most of the time, you know, luck is on your hand and you'll be able to, to get a job. Apart from that, I don't have any other, you know, set gifts that I give them, whatever they, whatever their, their passion is. So if they're passionate about books, then I'd give them a book, but, um, any particular books that, bring to mind that, that are regular gifts that you use? Uh, you know, now I would probably give a book called Sapiens. I don't know if you've read it. No, no, I haven't. I'll check it out. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great book. So, who's the uh, author? About the, uh, it's a, it's a, can't remember his name, but it's a, it's a brief uh, history of humankind. Cool. And it, uh, yeah, it's a, 
it's a really a, one of my favorite books, if not my favorite book. So I would definitely give that book to any intern that's leaving. Right on, right on. That's awesome. And probably man. some of the, the, the new books in SNC that have come out as well. You know, I'm really keen to read uh, The Game Changer by uh, Fergus Connolly. I think that'll be a good read. And, uh, you know, back when I started, I think we had two textbooks on SNC, you know, the NSCA one and, uh, you know, a bunch of exercise physiology ones. But, you know, now there are multiple books about high performance that are full of information that I wish I had when I was younger. So I'd probably give them one of them as well. Great, great. Yeah, cool, um, mate. Look, this this has been this has been awesome. Great information uh, you've shared with us. And um, how, if people do want to get in contact with you, or if they want to learn more, we know that you're going to be coming to the ACA conference um, and speaking yep. there, and, not, <coughs> and that people can can get along to the ACA conference. Is uh, like social media, Twitter, or or your yep. uh, what? What would be the best best thing? If, yeah. Just, you know, I am on Twitter, uh, just due to the, the nature of the work that I do, I don't post anything, but if people want to uh, get in touch with me through Twitter, then I, I will always respond or likewise, if they want to uh, get in touch with me through LinkedIn, that's also another avenue if anyone has any other, other questions about anything. So those are probably the, the two easiest ways to get in touch for sure. Uh, right on, right on, right on, Karen. Mate, look, like I said, it's been great talking to you. Um, this stuff, especially that uh, dynamic strength index and like the application of that and your philosophies, uh, working with other people and other coaches and building trust. Look, all that stuff is gold for uh, gold for people, not just in the uh, S&C profession, but anybody working with uh, working with other people. So, mate, thanks heaps. Um, and uh, look, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll hopefully I'll see you at the ACA conference when it comes along. Yeah, yeah. yeah, for sure. Thanks for having me on the podcast. Cool, man. Great. All right, that's it, folks. That's all she wrote. Uh, so I hope you enjoyed that. I really did, um, and uh, it's, it's really been a pleasure of mine to, to interview these these guests and uh, to get their ideas and insights on 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 what's happening in, in their uh, specific jobs and their expertise and so on. So look, I hope that's reflecting on on the job we're doing with with this podcast. Uh, in terms of Karen, he's actually doing a speech for the ACA at the ACA conference in November on the Gold Coast. It would be highly recommended to get along to that. Uh, otherwise, like I mentioned, you can find him on LinkedIn or Twitter if you're interested in more of what he does. So, look, that's it. We're over and out. Uh, hope you all enjoyed that. And uh, jump back on next time we, we uh, put up a new podcast. It'd be great. All right. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye.